the Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry, and we are going to do part or redo of Survey of the Views on Church Government. Apparently, we taped this and it got lost. Technically, we didn't tape it. We recorded it. It's a true statement. Yes. Is that anachronism? Yes. All right. So, anyhow, we're all surviving Snowmageddon in Kenosha. We got like 45 feet, it seems. Nowhere to put it. Nowhere to put it. That's the thing. <laughs> we got so much snow here. <laughs> it's, it's just, you're snow, even snowblowers are like, what? Where? where <laughs> I can only blow it so far. <laughs> so, anyhow, we are all enjoying the beauty of the snow. It warms up hopefully next week and then it starts to melt. But we're going to be talking about the views on church government. Uh, this is just simply a survey, uh, and it's all part of the Systematic 3, um, Systematic Theology 3 that we've been doing on ecclesiology. Um, the weird thing is that church government is one of those places where debates abound. Uh, we gave a broad overview on this whole issue already, and now we're going to begin to drill a little bit more and get into some detail, but again, not terribly so. What we are trying to do is ease you into thinking about how the church ought to be governed. We want you to see that there are real debates and that they actually matter, though maybe you're not aware of them. Um, some recent events highlighted this in some very sad ways. Um, you may recall Driscoll's church, Mars Hill. It's defunct. Supposedly, it was elder rule but the reality showed that it wasn't, in fact, that they had boards within boards and advisors who were outside the actual church itself. And so, ultimately, it imploded, and part of it was a leadership failure. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, How do you say that S-word? S-word? At the beginning. Survey? No. Right after Mars Hill was defunct. Supposedly. Oh. What did I say? <laughs> I think you say supposedly. Oh, hey. <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> That's a terrible wabbit. <laughs> supposedly. I might very well do that. Supposedly. Anyhow. Golly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, James McDonald. Uh, that debacle is another example, though, where he was essentially doing whatever he wanted. He terrorized the staff. He, uh, either, uh, the, and the elders, they were literally e either willfully ignorant or too afraid to stand up to him. Um, either way, totally unacceptable. Uh, we could talk about others like uh, good old Tulian Chivijan, if I can never get that name right. Uh, but every one of these ultimately show that you can have a form that may look good, but if it doesn't function in a biblically informed manner, then really it doesn't matter. Sin is going to abound. And so we think about how many churches in Ethiopia are run as another example, because we go there and we teach a lot. Uh, there's a pastor, but he's really only an administrator of the spiritual life of the church. He doesn't actually care for the people. Uh, the elders function just as some wise men. Others are the ones who do all the teaching. And so it's a very strange for us when we meet and train their leaders, because we use terms like a pastor 
and we mean it one way, and they mean it another way. Uh, a pastor there basically is running the church calendar and assigning preaching to a host of uh, individuals. So all of that's to say that the church government really does matter whether you know that or not. And the Bible actually is not silent on it. But the church has been around for a long time, and as a result, a lot of tradition is now part of the problem when working through the material. And that's what we'll deal with today, a broad, broad survey of various ways churches practice the art of governing and leading the people of God. Okay, so the first one we'll talk about is... Roman Catholic. Do I sound weird to you? Sort of, but I don't know why, because... Nothing's different. Nothing's different, except we put more sound tiles on the ceiling. Maybe that's it. You're under more tiles than I am. Oh, that's true. We're slowly soundproofing this uh, secret bunker of ours. After that, we'll outfit it with (laughs) AR-15s. I'm in a mood. My wife is gone. She went to her family's farm to help sell it. So I'm alone. Hmm. Me clean. and my dog. And your cat. cat which that. I have to go clean up after, right after we tape this. So I'm in a bad mood. Well, Nobody cares. Well, who bought it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I bought it. <laughs> I bought it. My wife wanted the cat, and I got her a cat. You're going to talk about Roman Catholics. So, Well, this is... This is a uh, type of Episcopalian government, and it's actually the most highly developed. The Pope is the physical head of the church, and then beneath him are a myriad of officials and councils that serve him in both ecclesiastical and diplomatic efforts. And so, in terms of the, the flow of authority, the concept of the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome, uh, which was the Pope, gradually developed over time, and... It was not a biblical or theological development. Rather, it was due to some political pressures and power shifts. Early in the second century, those who had personal contact with the apostles were often looked to as the leaders by virtue of the close connection they had with the apostles. And eventually, the authority of bishops was recognized in various geographical areas where the church had spread. And so the bishops in these areas were then viewed as having a a special authority. Until the middle of the 5th century, the church was characterized by the, f- the federated view of the episcopate, in which the bishops of the various churches were viewed as having equal authority, and the bishop of Rome, up until that time, was viewed as the first among equals, but he was not considered as having more authority necessarily than the other bishops. Yeah, and people may not know the federated just simply speaks like we have a federal government, it's a government of representatives. So yeah, those bishops are, the various bishops were supposedly equal and they were to represent their area. Um, But good old Pope. But Rome. Yeah, Rome. Yeah. In the fifth century, uh, Leo the Great began to assert the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome and was accepted in the sixth century by the Western church, which was, you know, what we know to be Roman Catholicism, essentially, but by the Western Church, but not by the Eastern Church. Until the Vatican I Council, uh, which took place in 1869 through 70, the Pope was viewed as having supreme authority, but only when he acted in unity with the other bishops. Uh, Vatican I uh, increased the Pope's authority then. And so when, when the Pope speaks 
something called ex cathedra, which is just means from the chair, it's Latin. Uh, when he speaks ex cathedra in matters of faith and practice, he's considered then to be infallible. This is a good example, though, when we get into Catholic, uh, Catholic doctrine, the, the power of tradition. Yeah. Since they're not, they don't hold to a sola scriptura, you know, it can be how many, how, 1869 is when all of a sudden ex cathedra comes into being. Uh, just interesting how that whole world of Roman Catholicism develops. It's it's ever evolving. Fascinating, right, right. wrong, I think, but fascinating. Yeah. Then then you have what something known as the College of Cardinals, and these are uh, the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church, and they're appointed by the Pope, and they serve the Pope in various ways. And then from there you have the bishops. Uh, these are appointed by the Pope, and they must be able to trace their lineage back to the original 12 apostles. That's interesting. And that's done by being connected to other bishops who can ex historically trace themselves back to the original men. And the entire body of bishops, along with the Pope, uh, make up the general council of the church, or also known as the magisterium. Yeah. Uh, and then you have heads of religious communities. Uh, so the Roman Catholic Church has several orders that seek to fulfill various roles and lifestyles. Uh, examples of that would be the Franciscans, you've got the Carmelites, you've got the Jesuits, which uh, began up here in Milwaukee, actually, with Marquette. Uh, Are you serious? Yeah. I had no knowledge. Yeah. Um, and then below that, you have priests, and these are essentially ordained by the bishops, and they are to aid the local bishop in caring or caring for the people of that particular area. All right, so that's a broad sense of how the Catholic Church uh, governs. In the world of the Protestant, uh, you have several different views. You have the Episcopalian. Uh, the Episcopal form of church government holds that the authority resides in a particular office, which is the, the office of bishop. Um, the bishop is the key to the functioning of church government, therefore. Everything else arranges itself under that point of authority. Uh, so it, he, this is what uh, one guy writes. He says, also called Episcopacy or Episcopalianism, this type of church polity places the authority of the church in a united body of bishops. So uh, Erickson writes in his theology, the role of the bishops is to exercise the power of God that has been vested in them. Their authority transcends that of the ordinary ministers. Uh, one power of the bishop is the ordination of ministers or priests. And so this is done through the laying on of hands, and it conveys powers to the ministers and priests for their work. The bishop also controls the placement of these people, so a lot of power. Um, the Episcopal structure is found most often in the various churches, like what we just said in the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, or the Anglican lineage. So some examples. In the Orthodox Church, unlike the Roman Catholic Church, they're overseen by several what are known as primates who work with archbishops and bishops for pastoral care. They are considered equal in authority for the most part, and none of them can claim exclusive authority like the Pope does. Um, then you have Anglicanism. This is in, seen in the Church of England and also the Episcopalian churches around the world. Then one other group is the Methodists. Now, there's various forms within the world of Methodists due to splits and changes. However, bishops are usually in the position for life, and they can wield a, a, quite a bit of authority. 
And there's some arguments that they use. Um, I don't think these are very good arguments, but these are the kind that are usually uh, proffered. Jesus uh, chose his apostles, who in turn chose leaders in the church. Uh, James appeared to have a position of a special authority with the Church of Jerusalem, which is viewed as functioning as a bishop. Now, he's never called that, but sure. that's what they said. And from his very beginning, the church recognized a special role for bishops. That's not true either. But, hey, good try. Yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, then, of course, you get some arguments against, uh, in spite of of uh, attempts to make a, a biblical support for bishops, there's there's simply no actual text that does that. And the focus is upon the office rather than the character or the qualifications of New Testament leaders. And there's no biblical support for the idea that there's a difference in authority between bishops and elders. So Wayne Grudem in his theology states, it is significant that the office of bishop is not a distinct office in the New Testament, but is simply a synonym for the name elder. There is no single bishop in the New Testament, but bishops or overseers are always plural in number. The apostles always appointed a plurality of elders in every church, never leaving only one person with governing authority. And nowhere in scripture is there any indication that bishops were to replace the apostles. From there, then you get into Presbyterianism. Uh, the, this comes from Erickson. The Presbyterian system of church government places primary authority in a particular office as well, but there's less emphasis on the individual office holder than on a series of representative bodies that exercise that authority. So within this system, it's the elder that is the key primary officer, and it's through the elders that Christ then operates in the well-being and leading of the local churches. Um, this comes from... Erickson, too. Erickson, yeah. Uh, the authority, he says, the authority is exercised in a series of governing assemblies at the level of the local church, the session, or uh, which, which is in Presbyterian, or consistor, consistory, which is in the Reformed, is the decision-making group. All the churches in one area are governed by the presbytery or classes, which is made up of one lay elder and one minister from each consistory, or one lay elder from each session and all the ministers in the area. Uh, he goes on, the next grouping is the synod, made up of an equal number of lay elders and clergy chosen by each presbyterian classes. At the highest level, the Presbyterian church also has a general assembly composed again of lay and clergy representatives from the presbyteries. Uh, he states, note that the synods are bypassed in this process. They do not choose the representatives to the general assembly. Decisions are made by the governing body at each level. These decisions are subjective to review and revision by the next higher body. This process does not so much originate or legislate action as it particularly uh, in conservative settings interprets and applies the explicit teaching of Christ and guidelines of the church. So the flow of oversight and authority tends to be from local elders upward into the synod and, and general assembly. There, there's not multiple levels of authority. Rather, there's there's one. There's yeah, the elders. It, it's a little complex, but basically that's what's going on. Versus Episcopalian, top down, it's heading yes. from the top. Oh yeah, very clearly top down. Yeah, in in Presbyterianism, the church, the local church, chooses its pastor, but there's a there there's a final approval uh, that takes place by the presbytery, and also the presbytery usually will own the property 
of the congregation. Uh, and within Presbyterianism, normally there's a distinction between the ruling elders and the teaching elders. They're not two different classes, rather it's it seemed to be one class, but with two different orders. And so the ruling elder comes out of the Old Testament where you got elders in Israel who would often rule on issues of the day for the people, and their sole role is to rule, it's to lead. And then the teaching elder is viewed as connecting back to that, the Levitical priesthood, uh, and not in a Romish manner, but that they have similar roles. Uh, they are those who Paul describes as given to preaching and teaching well. They, they rule, but they have the added responsibility to teach. Yeah, but you see the effect of how like covenant theology steps into there because you have that continuity between the Old and New Testament. Which so, is informing. That yeah, how, yeah uh, because you're going well beyond, again, New Testament instruction on it. There is that mention that elders who are good at teaching and preaching uh, and they work hard at it, they're worthy of double honor, but in no sense can you easily extrapolate from that. Therefore, there's this different order or type of elder um, in, in that sense. Uh, now, there are some arguments against the Presbyterian view of the church government. Uh, Erickson notes that the Presbyterian system is rooted in a hierarchy of governing bodies for which there is little or no support within Scripture. But they can fill, nonetheless, because they are Presbyterians, they can fill whole books, nonetheless, on the subject. I'm always impressed with Presbyterians. You know you're reading a Presbyterian author just on how thick it is and how <laughs> how detailed they go. It's incredible. Uh, nowhere, uh, Grudem notes, uh, nowhere in Scripture do elders have regularly established authority over more than their own local church. There also tends to be a long-running theological battles that take place through various formal litigation opportunities, and, and, but they result with very little resolution. All of this is functioning at a higher level than the local church, but having an effect upon it, though the local church has little to say or to do about it. Um, and finally, one other weakness to this is it's too dependent on the national leadership, which has the ability to put quite a bit of pressure upon the local churches in times of disputes over doctrine and practices. So, um, and, and you see, I mean, if anyone knows the history of Presbyterianism, there's a lot I like about it. I, I, I mean, I really do appreciate it, but they just keep repeating and they just keep making new denominations because of these high-level theological ruminations that go well beyond what Scripture is. Anyhow, uh, another uh, form is called congregational. Uh, so this is a third form. It stresses the role of the individual Christian and makes the local congregation the seat of authority. Two concepts are basic to the congregational scheme. They are autonomy and democracy. That comes from Erickson. <laughs> Autonomy simply means that there is no external power that can dictate the direction or doctrine of the local church. Uh, final authority will always rest with the local congregation and never outside of it. And then democracy means that every member has a voice and a vote. Final authority rests with the whole of the local congregation and not with a subset of them. So Erickson notes, the concept of democracy means that authority within the local congregation rests with the individual members. 
Now, in many congregational churches, especially Baptist, then, there's a strong emphasis on the priesthood of the believer, which is only mentioned once, and it's in 1 Peter 2.9, and it gives us no information on it. But again, Baptists are famous for filling entire books on our great role as as priests. Um, Therefore, any other authority over them, such as elders or bishops, would diminish that high calling, and so they're resistant toward that. Uh, therefore, the leaders of, in a congregational form would have be elected by the people to represent them. They are to do the will of the congregation. Small decisions are delegated to the elected leaders, but the major ones rest with every member as a whole. It's a, and that's, it's very American. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you can just see how, how, we, how we function in our country has yeah. formed ecclesiological yep. authority here. So that, what are the groups that practice the congregational form of government? Uh, it would be the Baptists, obviously the Congregationalists, um, and most Lutheran groups. Uh, people didn't—I uh, didn't know that until I, I was working on this. Um, so here's some arguments for congregationalism. Never do you see a higher ecclesiastical authority governing over the local assembly in the New Testament, and that is that's very key. Uh, the New Testament is usually the primary point of appeal for this form. In the earliest examples in the church, it was the people who were making the decisions. So uh, the people selected what many call the first deacons. You see that in Acts 6. Paul and Barnabas made a report to the whole church. You see that in Acts 13. Uh, church discipline is a matter that involves the whole church. If you know the church discipline process from Matthew 18, uh, Paul's letters were addressed to the churches as a whole, uh, but he doesn't he doesn't address it to a bishop or a group of right. elders. Um, so, so what are some forms of congregationalism? Well, first of all, you have the single elder or the single pastor. Um, the pastor, in this view, is viewed as the only elder in the church, and that is that's something that's very common in smaller Baptist churches. Uh, Grudem writes, in this system, the congregation elects the pastor and also elects the deacons. The amount of authority the pastor has varies greatly from church to church and will generally increase the longer a pastor remains in a church. Uh, He also goes on to state the authority of the deacon board is often thought to be merely an advisory authority. In this way, the system ordinarily functions, especially in smaller churches. Many decisions must be brought before the congregation as a whole. Then, from the single elder, single pastor model, you move into uh, something that's just pure democracy. And, and this position takes congregational church government to its logical extreme. Uh, everything must come to the congregational meeting. And that form downplays any sense of distinct leaders within the teaching of the New Testament. And these are rather rare, uh, as they often do not survive long due to just paralysis and decision-making. That's true. Uh, a subset of this is the idea of no governing authority at all other than the Holy Spirit. Um, this sees the church as being guided in a um, mystical sense by the Spirit. Yeah, yeah. I actually have a story of that was I think might be interesting. Um, a professor of mine, he was asked to come and become the pastor of a Baptist church in Los Angeles area. And so he did. And when he did, he was a gifted speaker, and the church went from about 100 people, uh, it shot up to about three, 400 people really quickly. And a lot of them were younger families that were excited. Um, a lot of people from our seminary were starting to show up there. 
And in the process, he's trying to guide the church. They had tons of money, uh, just tons of money, but they were always just think about how to make more money rather than how to invest it for the kingdom. And he wanted to start diverting some of that toward church planting and missions. And the old members really did not like that. And so it was starting to become a point of major conflict. And so then they decided to have a vote of, uh, uh, to, on whether or not they would keep him or not. And this is where that congregationalism really stood out to me, is that they were literally, no joke, they were literally bringing people in on wheel- wheelchairs uh, from nursing homes that were members, um, hadn't been that church for decades, but but they were on the membership roll, and they were all being brought in, and all these new people had not been brought into membership, so they had no vote. And so even though the church was now four times bigger and doing things and, and excitement, and there's growth and, and change going on, the old members didn't like it, and so they worked the congregational system, and they voted him out. And so overnight, literally, um, it, it was really sad. Overnight, that church went from close to 400 down to 50 because he, he, uh, they, they forced him out, and he just left quietly. He didn't put up a stink. He wouldn't even defend himself, um, but everyone left. And the, two Sundays later, 500 people were gathering in a park <laughs> uh, with him, and he was just teaching them, and a new church came into being. But that church still sat there with all their hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and 50 very angry, bitter people who won the battle. And I'm just like, I'm not sure you won anything, but sure. it, it, that's congregationalism, pure and simple. So uh, there's also this idea of plural elder rule over local autonomous churches. Uh, this form of church government recognizes that churches should be under the oversight of multiple elders whose authority rests solely over the local church of which they're a part. It's worth noting that there's little detail within the New Testament, though, regarding the format the church is to have. Uh, are we supposed to do Sunday school, cell groups? Remember, were you old enough to remember the cell group movement? Oh, yeah. Um, so the cell groups, the visitation nights, Awana, whatever it might be. But what is given a lot of detail is to the office of elder, and a lot of people don't know that. Over 50 times, the New Testament, apart from the Gospels, mentions elders or one of its related terms. Compare that with only 12 times the term hell or its related terms is mentioned. Yet, most people are actually quite ignorant as to what an elder is to do or or be. Uh, In this form, normally there will be more than one elder, so authority never rests with just one person. The reality is that this may not occur right away. An example would be Titus. Uh, He was sent to Crete to appoint elders. Uh, Either there were none up to that point or they were not qualified, and therefore they had to all be replaced. Uh, Today, you would see it in a young or struggling church. They might only have one elder, uh, the pastor, to begin with. But the pastor would want to begin to work hard at developing or raising up other men to become qualified as well. So then the pastor is one among several elders, and the pastor does not have authority over those other elders, nor is he seen as an employee of the elders. Uh, So this becomes an issue of authority, not responsibility. 
all elders are to care for the flock, but the responsibilities and how that is accomplished is going to vary with giftedness and availability. Authority belongs collectively to the entire group of elders, and each elder, including the pastor himself, is subject to the authority of the elder board as a whole. So in our church, I have a lot of authority or, tr- or a lot of responsibility is the better one by virtue of how long I've been here, but also um, I'm the pastor of the church. And so the, the elders years ago said that I would have the authority to speak to all things related to inst- teaching, doctrine, and the worship service. Um, now, they also, though, at any point can insert themselves into the, They can call me on the carpet. They can ask me to explain myself or something. But as our church was growing, they began to realize they can't be worrying about how our pews are set up or something like that. Um, and so it was like, okay, Matt's here. Matt knows what's going on on a day-to-day level. We're going to, if we can't trust him on those things and we have a bigger problem, we should just get rid of Matt. So I have that authority in the church to be able to make all kinds of decisions. And it's up to me to keep the pat, the other elders then apprised. You're, you've got the situation up at your congregation right now, because it's a young one um, where you're the only elder up there. Yeah. Well, and and you also have your own staff. Right. They don't work for the other elders. No. Well, they do technically. But, but they report to you. But they report to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, also, did you have in here elder-led as a distinction between elder rule? We're going to get into that in another one. Okay. Uh, and we're going to talk at length about the whole idea of an elder rule or elder-led church because uh, guys like Mark Dever um, argues for an elder-led church, but he, he, he holds to a form of congregationalism. And right. so it's led by elders, but it's actually ruled by the congregation. Uh, we don't do that at our church. We're el- actually elder rule, and we'll yeah. make our arguments. Yeah, so I was just going to say in there, if you do have an elder-led church, it is technically a form of congregationalism. Yeah. It is not what you just laid out here as elder rule. Right. They're quite different. Right. So we'll, we'll actually get into that in great detail because we actually think it's a superior form, um, and we think that it has the most biblical evidence to support it. Um, but that's enough for this episode. Uh, we thank you for sticking with us in it. Uh, we will come back to the subject later because we want to develop that position of ours in detail. Uh, but we're going to uh, move on. Uh, And until we get to that part of the church government again, we ask you to continue to tune in, join the conversation. We want to hear your thoughts on church government. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review on iTunes. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend.